You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys today. Like Joanna said, my name's Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor. And this summer, we've been going through a message series based on Jesus's teaching in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And we've called it the Divine Conspiracy. And usually when we think of a conspiracy... We think of a plan that's kind of hatched behind the scenes and is implemented behind the scenes to bring about evil. But when we read through Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, what we realize is what Jesus is describing is a plan. It's a behind-the-scenes plan that God came up with to bring about good, to actually work against and undermine the forces of evil that are at work in our world. So what Jesus is describing is a plan to take our world that's been flipped upside down by evil and to flip it back to right side up. So, so far in this series, we've looked at Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus describes the role that we play, our part in this divine conspiracy. And now we're going to shift to chapter 6. And in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus identifies three things that will keep us from doing our part. He talks about seeking approval from others looking to money for security, and worry. Three things that if we allow these to be our motivation, allow these to be the things that drive us, they'll undermine our ability to do our part in this divine conspiracy. So over the next three weeks, we're going to spend one week looking at each one of these. And we're going to start today, and we're going to talk about seeking approval from others. And the big idea today is seeking approval from people will keep you from doing your part in the divine conspiracy. God has a role for you to play. He wants you to contribute in this plan, this behind-the-scenes plan to flip the world back to right side up. But if our motivation is seeking approval from other people, it's going to undermine and prevent us from doing that. When I was in um, junior high, I had a summer job. Me and some buddies um, decided that we would go around the neighborhood. We made these little flyers on our dad's computers, and we um, went around the neighborhood and passed them out, and we mowed lawns for the summer. And there were a few nice-hearted grandma and grandpas in the neighborhood who allowed us to destroy their lawn that summer and paid us to do it. And so we worked, and we, you know, we got some money. And at the end of the summer, I took all the money that I had made, that I'd saved up, and I talked my mom into taking me to the mall. And I, I had a very specific thing I was there and I was looking for. I was going to the mall because I wanted to buy some Nike Air Max 95s. Now, I remember going in, I remember the store, I remember how it was laid out, I remember exactly where the shoes were, and my memory, the shoes were above $100, and so I looked it up, they were, they were $140 back in the 90s. And my mom did not think this was a good decision. She knew how hard I had worked that summer, she knew how much money I had. She also knew that this was the time of life where um, you buy your shoes two sizes too big, because in a few months you're probably going to outgrow them anyways. So she did not think this was a good decision to spend my hard-earned money on these shoes, but I wanted them. I thought they were cool, and not only did I think they were cool, but I, I just imagined in my mind what it would be like to walk in to hang out with all my buddies and for them to see those shoes. Who cares if they were like water skis? But I walk in, they would see them, and they would think, man, Elliot's got some cool shoes. So I got them, and I got them because I knew that my friends would think that they were cool. And this is something that's deep inside all of us. Deep inside all of us is a desire to be seen by others and for them to approve of us. And we pursue this in a lot of different ways. For some people, it's possessions. It's like me and those shoes. We use what we own to get approval from other people. For 
some its accomplishments. We achieve things or we win awards to validate ourselves and to get acceptance from the crowd. For some people, it's humor. If they can get people to laugh, then they feel like they've been approved of. For some, it's about who you know. They name drop, they use name association, they associate themselves with different people that are of influence to try to add value to themselves and prove that they're worthy and they're worthy of being accepted. For some people, it's what they know. It's their knowledge, they use their information. But deep inside of all of us is a desire to be seen by others and for them to approve of us. And there's an interesting comment made about this that helps us kind of understand why we are this way. At the very beginning of the Bible, and this is what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. This is a comment made before sin enters into the picture. This is what it says. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, that's a statement in the beginning of the Bible that seems odd to us. It like, kind of gets our attention. What in the world is that talking about? But it's making the point that they had nothing to hide. They were in a perfect relationship with God. They were accepted by him. And because they were accepted by him, they were whole. And they needed nothing else. And because they didn't need anything else because of the type of relationship with, that they had with God, they had no questions about their identity. They had no insecurities. They had no uncertainties about themselves. The fear of rejection did not motivate their behavior. They didn't have to perform or be funny or be cool. They didn't need to prove themselves to anyone because they were accepted by God. They were whole in his presence. They didn't need to add anything to who they were. Again, they were in a perfect relationship with God. They didn't need anything else. And because of the vertical relationship they had with God, that informed how they were able to relate to one another. They related to one another without shame. But then when Adam and Eve sinned, this all changed. They experienced shame for the first time. What shame is, here's a definition. Shame is a painful feeling brought about by a strong sense of guilt, embarrassment, unworthiness, or disgrace, a strong feeling, something that they experienced for the first time, something deep inside. They knew that something was wrong, and because of their sin for the first time, they knew that they didn't measure up. Because they had rejected God and turned from him in their sin, now for the first time in their existence, when it came to their relationships with other people, they now felt the fear of being rejected. And since they had rejected God, they now had to go and find someone to tell them that they mattered, to tell them that they were worthy, to approve of them and to accept them. And so they went and searched for something or someone other than God to tell them who they were. This is something that all of us experience in this upside down world that we live in. All of us have been impacted by sin and all of us are, built, are, are born in with this sense of shame. And it's so familiar to us, so routine, such a normal way of going through life that we often don't think about why we are the way that we are. You know, one of our shared deepest desires is the desire to be approved of by other people, for the desire to be accepted. That is one of our shared deepest desires. One of our greatest fears that we also share is the fear of being rejected. And these two, the, de the desire to be accepted and the fear of being rejected, these are powerful motivators. When you consider the things that we do, why we react in different situations, why we get angry over certain things that happen. Oftentimes, the desire that's behind it or the fear that's motivating the behavior is the desire to be approved of, to be accepted, and the fear of being rejected. So Jesus, when he comes, he is fully aware of this reality about us, the shame that we carry and our desire to have other people approve of us. So this is what he says at the beginning of Matthew 6. 
as he starts talking about the topic we're going to explore this morning. He says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He starts and he says, be careful. Be careful because he knows exactly who we are. He knows that we spend much of our lives trying to get the crowd to approve of us. And he's saying, hey, now that you're following me, now that you're a part of this divine conspiracy to bring change in the world, be careful that that thing that's motivated much of your life up until this point, be careful that that's not your motivation anymore. He points to a new motivation for us. He says something interesting, too. He says, when he says to be seen, he refers to doing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's a one Greek word, and the word is the word theomai. And it's the root from the English word theater. It gives us the root of the English word theater. And we all know what a theater is. A theater was, is where an audience gathers around a stage to see someone put on a performance. So he uses the word theomai, referring to, he paints this picture of a theater. Another word that he's getting ready to use, we haven't read this part of the passage, but he's getting ready to use the word hypocrite. In Jesus' day, a hypocrite was an actor. We all know in our day what it means is it's, it's somebody who claims something about themselves, they claim to be a certain way, and then they turn around and they do something different. They say one, one thing's true about them, and then they turn around and they do something different. They're just, they're just putting on an act. So Jesus is painting this picture of he's saying, hey, I, I'm fully aware of who you guys are. I know that you live for approval of the crowd. I know that as you go through your life, it's common for you to just kind of get on the stage and put on a performance, put on an act in order to get the crowd to accept you. And there's multiple audiences that we perform in front of. I mean, our, our family is an audience, both immediate family and extended family, people we care about, people that we want to get approval from. People at work are an audience, people that we behave a certain way around them in order to get them to accept us. Friends, friends might be one of the most powerful audiences. Our neighbors are an audience. People at church are an audience. We put on a front. We put on an act to get approval from the audience. And one of the things that all, all of these audiences have in common is they're human audiences. And human audiences, their, their tastes and their appetites and their likes and their dislikes change over time. I was recently listening to an audio by a um, famous director, and he was talking about this challenge. He was talking about how you make a movie one year, and you win awards for it, and you turn around and you make an, another movie, and everybody thinks it's terrible. And it's because the audience keeps changing. And so as a director, someone who's putting out content, you have to pay attention to what the audience wants, and then you have to play to the audience. And what this means for us, because there's these different stages in life and these different audiences that we're performing in front of, this means that approval is a moving target. What we do to get approval one day is not necessarily the thing that we're going to do to get approval the next day. And Jesus knows about this tendency. He knows that because of the shame that we carry because of our sin, that we're seeking approval from the crowd, and that means that we live life seeking this thing that's just a moving target. So he knows that a lot of times what we end up doing is we live like chameleons. We behave one way in one setting, and then we change our behavior for the next setting, for the next stage, for the next audience. So maybe there's one audience that when we're around this audience, this audience, they value strong convictions on specific topics. They really respect people that have strong convictions. But then you go in front of this other audience, and suddenly they reject those convictions that this group approves of. So now you kind of got to get loose with your convictions. And well, I don't really know about that. It may be in front of this audience, 
maybe there's a way of speaking, maybe there's a vocabulary that gets approval, and people accept you and they respect you if you talk a certain way. But then if you go back over here in front of this audience, suddenly they reject you if you do that. So that means that as we go through life, because of this desire to get the approval of the crowd, for them to accept us, then we just we do what chameleons do. We keep changing our colors depending on the audience. We put on this act. And Jesus knows about this. So Jesus is saying, hey, now that you're following me, now that you're a part of this divine conspiracy, don't let that be your motivation. So he, he does something really fascinating in this passage. In contrast with holding up this reality that we seek the approval of the crowd, he holds another idea in contrast to this. He refers to God as your Father in heaven. Now, in the passage, we're going to go through the first 18 verses in Matthew 6. You're going to see that over and over again, Jesus uses this idea of Father, Father in heaven, Heavenly Father. And the reference to heaven is not just a reference to a location. It is an actual location. But it's not kind of saying, I mean, my, my dad, for example, my dad lives out of state. So, you know, if I say you know, my dad lives in Oklahoma, well, I can call him, I can tell him what's going on in my life, but he doesn't actually know what's happening with me right now. He's not in a position where he's present and can help me right at this moment because he's off, he's distant, he's somewhere else. That's not what Jesus is saying when he refers to God as our Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying when he refers to our God as our Father in heaven, that's a reference to his position or the power that he has. God is the most powerful being in the universe. So what Jesus is saying when he says, your father in heaven, he's saying that the creator of the universe, the most powerful being, you're now in a father-child type of relationship with that person. That's the point that he's making. And he's saying because of this relationship, all the privileges of being a child are now at your disposal. God's not far off, distant, unaware of what's happening. He's present, and he has more power than anyone. He has the ability to act, and his relationship towards us is the relationship of a father. Now, I recognize that nobody has had a perfect earthly father. And for some of you, just the image of a father, because of the experience with your earthly father, the image of a father brings up painful ideas. It brings up heartache. And we all know this. We know that for a lot of people, you know, we all have the desire to be approved of by the crowd. But for a lot of people, that rejection that they received from their earthly father or the lack of approval that they got from their earthly father has just spurred them on to do even more things to get approval from the crowd. So I recognize that no one has a perfect earthly father. But just imagine, even if you had a terrible earthly father, just imagine what it would be like to have a perfect father. Just imagine. Imagine if you had a father who was present in your life, who supported you, who approved of you, who championed you in different ways. Imagine you had a perfect father who said to you, I love you, I believe in you, I'm proud of you. I mean, imagine what that would be like. That's the image that, that Jesus is portraying to us. I remember when I was growing up, I, um, I had a soccer game, and I was probably 10 or 11, and the field that we played at had a grandstand off to the side. And so um, we're playing the game, and um, I was a forward, so I was kind of in the, an attacking position, and at one point in the game, I scored a goal. And all the fans are off in the grandstand, and so I score the goal, and my teammates celebrating, and I just instantly turn, and I look to the crowd, and guess who I'm looking for? I'm looking for my dad. 
And when I look to the crowd, um, my dad's in the crowd, and we make eye contact. And right when we make eye contact, my dad goes like this. And it's the live long and prosper from Star Trek. And what's really funny about that is we don't even watch Star Trek. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, he's got a good sense of humor, but I have no idea why he did that. I just look up to the crowd, and we make eye contact, and he just, you know, well done, son. That approval from my dad, that meant more to me in that moment than the opinions of anybody else watching that game. I mean, now, like, I mean, we're talking almost 30 years later. That still means a lot to me to have my dad approve of me. You know, even Hollywood, Hollywood knows this. Hollywood knows the importance of a father. You know, when a storyteller wants to paint a picture of a character who's hurt or rejected, there's always a scene where it's a school play, it's a sporting event, it's a major life transition, and the main character looks out at the crowd, and who's not in the crowd? Dad, the father, the one that we instinctively look to for approval, to say, you matter, and what you're doing is significant. I mean, Hollywood knows this. These are the pictures that they paint. So as Jesus is, is talking about this desire that we have to seek approval from the crowd, this desire for the crowd to tell you that you matter, for the crowd to tell you that you're significant and what you're doing is worthwhile. As Jesus holds that up, at the same time, in contrast to that, he holds up this image of God being our Father, our Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven. He holds those two in contrast. And essentially what he's saying is, he's saying, hey, if God's your Father, and if He accepts you and He approves of you, then why, why do you need to spend your time, waste your time seeking approval from the crowd? You don't, because God's your father. You don't have to live like a chameleon where in one setting you behave one way and in another setting you behave another way, and you're just playing to the desires and the whims of the audience. You don't have to do that, because God's your father. So instead of it being about what does the audience want, what do I got to do to get approval from the crowd, it's about what's going to please my father? What does he want me to do? He approves of me. He accepts me. I'm in a relationship with the creator of the universe, and the relationship is the father-child kind of relationship. And there's nothing I can do, nothing anybody else can do that will change that relationship. So Jesus, as he's talking about playing our role in this divine conspiracy, he's saying, hey, I know you guys all live for the crowd, but God's your father in heaven. You don't have to chase the crowd because you've now got approval from the most powerful being in the universe, and he's your father. Jesus holds these two ideas up in contrast. And then as he does this, he, he points to three interesting activities, three interesting practices, three things that actually we can do to experience God's activity in our life. And as he's holding up this contrast of seeking approval from the crowd and living for our father in heaven, he points to three things that will actually help us have more power and more ability to play our role. And he's making the point of, hey, these things that will really help you and benefit you, help you do what God wants you to do, if you do them for the crowd, they're going to be ineffective. But if you do them for God, there's blessing, there's reward. The three things that he holds up are financial generosity, prayer, and fasting. So let's look at these and see how he unpacks these ideas. So the first one, First of the three ways to experience God's activity in your life is financial generosity. 
It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1 through 2. Right after he says, be careful that you don't do your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, he says this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now what does it mean when he says they've received their reward in full? What he's saying is, he's saying God sees their hearts. God knows what their motivation is. God knows that they actually don't want anything to do with God. They just want approval of the crowd. Or like it says here, they want to be honored by the crowd. And because God knows what they want, what Jesus is saying is, essentially God will step out of the way and let them go after what they want. And if they want approval of the crowd, like the hypocrites do in this passage, if they want the crowd to applaud and to say, great job, and that temporary fleeting approval of the crowd, if that's what they want, well, then God will step out of the way and let them go try to get it. But if they get it, that's all they're going to get. They wanted honor of the crowd. That's it. That's all they get. He goes on. He says, but when you give to the needy, it's not supposed to be like that with us. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he's already held up contrast between seeking approval from the crowd, seeking approval from God. Now he holds up essentially two rewards. One reward that's fleeting and temporary and really worthless. And then he says, but there's this other reward, and it's a reward from God. And when he talks about this reward, this is the earthly and eternal blessing of God. This is tangible things. It's intangible things. This is things that you experience in this life. It's things that await us in heaven in the life to come. This is the earthly and eternal blessing of God in your life. What Jesus is saying is, hey, if, if you live to please God, God rewards you. And sometimes we think, well, I should just do the right thing because it's the right thing and there's really nothing in it for me. Well, God doesn't view it that way. God says, yeah, do the right thing because it's the right thing. But guess what? I reward. In other words, if you do the right thing because it's the right thing, what's your dad going to do? He's going to hook you up. I mean, that sounds pretty good. The most powerful being in the universe rewarding me for doing the right thing. I would much rather that than the honor of the crowd. This is what Jesus is presenting. Now, when he says, he says something really curious here when he talks about financial generosity. He says that we're not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? I mean, that sounds, on the surface, that sounds impossible. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, you know, for me, I've been, I've been driving a car for over 20 years. And uh, my wife and I, we've lived up off of Warner for um, a little over five years, almost six years maybe. And so my route to work, even though we, we switched houses at some point, my route to and from church has been the same for about five years, maybe six years. And I drive that route multiple times a week, back and forth. Never have I walked into the house after driving home from work and said, Allie, you won't believe it. I, I drove home. I walked to my car, and with my right hand, I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out the keys, and I clicked the clicker. And with my left hand, I put my hand on the handle, and I opened the door. And then I got in the car. 
And with my right hand, I put the key in the ignition, and my left hand, I grabbed the seatbelt, and I buckled it, and I turned the car on. And then with my left hand, I put my hand on the steering wheel, and my right hand, I put my hand on the shifter and put it in reverse. You'd never believe it. I did it. No, I'd never do that. I mean, I would, you'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, why are you acting so crazy? I mean, driving home is so instinctual. There are days I get home, I don't even remember driving home. I mean, it's just so routine that I do it without any fanfare or bringing any attention to it. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that, hey, being generous with your money, being financially generous, should be so routine that you just you do it. You just build it into your life, and you don't have to make a big deal about it. You don't have to be like, oh, you know, I just I gave so much. It's so rare for me to give. No, it's just so normal for you to give that you do it without fanfare. It doesn't matter who knows or what they know or how much they know. All that matters is God wants me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And what Jesus is saying is when you live that way, when it's so routine, so instinctual that you just do it, what does he say your Father in heaven's going to do? He says he rewards that. Says that he sees it and he rewards financial generosity. Next thing Jesus says, Jesus shifts and he talks about prayer. Verse 5, very next verse, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Again, notice the repetition. It talks about the hypocrites. They've received their reward in full. They wanted to look good. God steps out of the way because he knows what they want. He lets them go try to look good. If they look good and get applause from the crowd, that's what they get. But that's all they get. But then he says, hey, but if your desire is to have a conversation with your Father in heaven, well, God knows that. He responds to that. He rewards that. And it's really helpful that as Jesus is talking about prayer and instructing us to go to our Father in prayer, he gives us an example of how to pray. Just a few verses later, verse 9, Jesus says this. It's called the Lord's Prayer. This is his example. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus isn't giving us a, a statement to recite thoughtlessly. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is talking about having a conversation with your father who is, who is present and knows what you're saying. So he's saying in this passage when he says how to pray, he's really giving us categories for things to pray about. Different things as we go before God in prayer that we can talk to God about. So for me, personally, I find this really helpful to think through these categories. And then sometimes I don't know what to say. So I'll just be like, well, I know this is one of the categories, so I'll start talking to God about that. So here, here are the categories. The first category is acknowledge God for who he is. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's saying acknowledge God for who he is. So sometimes I'll start, and this is what I'll do. I'll say, hey, God, thank you that I can call you Father. Thank you that like a father, a good father, a perfect father, you're present in my life. You care about what's going on in my life. You want to be involved in my life. So I'll just spend some time acknowledging God for who he is, reflecting on the reality 
that I can call him father. The next category is pray for what he would want. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For me, a lot of my prayers are in response to challenges or problems or unwanted things that arise in my life. Something goes wrong and suddenly I'm like, oh God, would you remove this problem? Would you eliminate this? Would you just take this away so that I don't have to deal with it? That's usually how my prayer starts. But Jesus is saying, hey, pray about what your father would want. So in our prayers, take time and just ask the question, okay, God, I, I know I just want this problem to go away, but God, what do you want with this problem? How do you want me to grow from this situation? How do you want the other people to grow? How do you want me to treat the other people in this situation? How do you want me to talk? How do you want me to think? And ask him. Ask him about what he would want. And then as he identifies things, pray for those things. And if you don't know, you know, go to him and just say, hey, God, I don't really know what's going on. But over time, as I figure out what you want, would you just help me to do it? Because I know I don't want this, but I know you've got a will here. So would you help me to live it out? Pray for what God wants in the different situations you face. Third category is to ask him for stuff. Jesus says in this example prayer, he says, give us today our daily bread. The idea is that you can go before God and tell him what you need and what you want. Sometimes I'll talk to people and they're like, "Ah, I just don't feel like I can tell God what I want. I I just don't feel like that's appropriate. Jesus felt like it was appropriate. You know, so for me in my life, you know, this last year, I bought a new surfboard. And if you've ever bought a new surfboard, they don't always go that great. You know, it's kind of hit and miss. So when I bought the board, you know what I did? I prayed. I prayed, God, would you allow this to be a good surfboard? You can do that. You can ask God for the stuff that you want. That's okay. You would do that in a perfect relationship between a child and a father. Why wouldn't you do that with your heavenly father? Ask him for stuff. Fourth category is to confess sin. Jesus says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So ask God, God, is there any sin in my life? Is there any sin that's keeping me from doing the things that you want me to do? Any, any sin that's, that's straining my relationship? And then as he reveals stuff, address it. Confess sin. The fifth and final category that he points to is a prayer of protection. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who hates God, and he hates the things that God loves. And if God loves us, then he hates us, and he hates the people that we love. He wants to destroy us. So spend time praying for protection, praying that God would protect you, pray that he would protect your family, protect the people around you, a prayer of protection. So if you don't have a regular time praying, I would recommend you start. You figure out a time. When's a time in my week, a place where you know, I'm not going to get distracted by you know, trying to impress other people because it's not about that. It's just, just about talking to God. When's a time in my week when I can do this? Identify that and then start doing it. And for me, one of the ways this looks like for me in my life is when I'm driving in the car alone. That's a great opportunity for me to pray. I don't always do it, but sometimes what I'll do is I'll, just, I'll turn the radio off and then I'm driving in the car alone, and I'll think of these categories, and I'll think about, you know what, I can pray to God about what I want. So what are some of the things that I want to happen in my life right now? And I'll pray for those things, or, you know, prayer of protection. I'll think about what's going on in my kids' lives, what's going on in Allie's life, what's going on with the church, and then I'll spend time praying that God would protect against what the enemy's doing. And for me, if I'm going to spend 
longer time in prayer. Sometimes I'll do like quick thought prayers where I'll just be in the moment and it's just a God help and it's a quick thought prayer. But if I'm going to spend more time in prayer, it's helpful for me to talk out loud because if it's just me and my brain, I get distracted pretty easily. And if you're in your car alone talking to yourself, no one's going to judge you because they're just going to think you're on the phone. So it's great. So you can just sit there and you can talk to God and you're alone and it doesn't care who's listening. You don't care who's listening. And you just have a conversation with him. And what does Jesus say will happen? He says, your father who sees what is done in secret will what? He'll reward you. He'll respond. He knows when your motivation is to just have a conversation with him about what's going on in your life. And he hears that and he promises to reward. There's great benefit. The last activity that Jesus highlights is fasting. He says this, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, the repetition. The hypocrites, they want to look impressive. They're living motivated by the approval of the crowd. So if they do good enough to get the crowd to approve, well, that's what they get. But that's all they get. But he's saying, hey, don't do that for that reason. You've got a Father in heaven, your heavenly Father. Do it for him. Make it about him. He rewards that. You know, fasting is something that's become, I think, more popular in recent years. And there's, um, there's many health benefits that people point to for fasting. There's health benefits to intermittent fasting, health benefits to fasting for longer periods of time. There are different influential health and wellness individuals that you can find on the internet that promote the benefits of fasting. But when Jesus talks about fasting, he's not talking about fasting for health benefits. He's talking about fasting for spiritual reasons. And fasting, the way that Jesus is talking about it here, it teaches us to rely on God and his power. And our bodies are, they're, they're biochemical machines, and food is fuel for our bodies. So we do need food. But we're more than just physical beings, we're also spiritual. And one of the things that fasting, the way that Jesus is talking about here, one of the things that it teaches us is that through the spiritual, God can give us something that's more energizing and more sustaining than what our body can get through just the natural processes of eating food. And so as you do this, the way that Jesus is talking about, as you fast for spiritual purposes, what happens is you start to experience more of God's presence and power as you are teaching yourself that I don't just live on physical food, I'm actually sustained and animated by the God of the universe, and I've got to learn that. So this is a very, very powerful thing that Jesus is talking about doing here, this practice of fasting. So if you don't have a practice of fasting, I'd recommend you figuring out, okay, what would this look like for me? So recently for me, a few weeks ago, what I did was I decided um, I, wouldn't, I, would, I would have a fast that started when I went to bed one night, and then I would break the fast at dinner the next day. So it was about 20 hours of a fast. And I fasted from food. I had, um, I had water. I had coffee with creamer. I don't know if that's technically allowed, but I did. And so I, had, I was hydrated, but I didn't eat any food. And throughout that day, 
um, that I went without food. I, you know, I had my stomach rumbled at a few times. I got the shakes. I got a little low blood sugar. I got a headache at one point during the day. But what I did as I went through that day is I had a verse that I was working on, a, a character quality of the Bible that the Bible identifies that's really important to God. So I had identified this verse, and I was praying that God would change me and make me into somebody that lives that out. So whenever my stomach would growl or I would feel a little jittery or maybe I'd have a headache, I would use that as a cue to pray. And just say, hey, God, I'm working on this thing. Would you help develop that as a character quality in my life? And would you use this experience to sustain me and to remind me that I don't just need physical food, but I actually need you and your presence in my life? So whenever my body would feel the pain of not having food, which it does, I would just use that as an opportunity to pray. And the only person that knew that I was doing that was my wife, because I didn't want her to be sitting there going like, well, why aren't you eating breakfast? This is just weird. I was like, hey, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to fast till dinner. No big deal. So I told her about it, because if I didn't tell about it, she'd be like, why, what, why didn't he take food for lunch? Why didn't he? You know, so it was a small thing. But it was an opportunity for me to learn to rely on God. So if you don't have a practice like this, I would consider you starting doing this. Again, this is one of the things that Jesus points to. And he says, hey, when your motivation is God and relying on him and you're seeking him in the process, what God promises is to reward you. So as we wrap up today, here's the challenge. The challenge is pick one of these three practices, financial generosity, prayer, or fasting. And this next week, do one of them. And when you do it, don't make a big deal about it. Maybe don't even tell anyone about it. Just do it between you and God. It's about you and God. It's not about the crowd. We spend so much of our life seeking approval from the crowd, getting them to affirm us or validate us or tell us that we're important. And Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need to do that anymore. Your father is God in heaven. You don't need the approval of the crowd. So don't do it for them. You're now part of this divine conspiracy to bring good in the world. And so as you're financially generous, as you go before your father in prayer, as you learn to rely on him through fasting, your father sees that. And even if no one else sees it, and even if no one else is aware, he sees it, and what does he promise to do? He promises to reward it. So this next week, take the challenge, pick one of those three things, put them into practice. It's an opportunity for you to experience more of God's presence in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you include us in the work that you're doing. I thank you that in your plan, you, don't, you do save us, and we get to experience the reality of being saved, but then we also get to participate and work with you and live life in a meaningful way where we can advance your mission. So God, I pray that as we do that, we would remember we don't live for the approval of the crowd. You are now our Father in heaven. And you have accepted us, and you approve of us, and you support us, and you're cheering for us. So we don't have to live like chameleons. We can live to please you, and there's great reward in that. I pray that you would help us. I pray that for the individuals that are going to take the challenge, whether in financial generosity or prayer or fasting, God, I pray that you would show up in unique ways next week for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.